This morning, my wife, who could not be with us today, sent me a text saying that she could not wait to hear my demon. I mean, sermon. I'm hoping that her Freudian typo is not some kind of prophecy about what you're about to hear. Those who are watching online, Bishop Ed can moderate and let you know whether or not what I'm about to say is in fact a demon or a sermon. So today we celebrate the the baptism of Christ, the, the, the theophany, the epiphany, the revelation of God in this singular event of Jesus coming, entering the waters of baptism, rising from the waters of baptism, and the Spirit resting on him. But if you noticed in the gospel, this story of Jesus' baptism is also the story of John the baptizer. And often in our accounts of the baptism of Jesus and its singular importance, we lose sight of the the crucial uniqueness of John's witness to the singularity of Jesus' baptism. And I think if we reflect for just a moment on John, we can begin to understand something important about Jesus. If we can think about John's baptism, we can come to understand something essential about Jesus' baptism and so about our baptism. We've all, I'm sure, heard of John as an eccentric figure. He's dressed in camel skins. He's eating locusts and wild honey. He's pronouncing doom and judgment and calling people to repentance and and to the baptism of repentance. But John was far more than an eccentric. He was, I think, clearly eccentric, but he was more than just a wild man, more than just a, a figure of strangeness. Jesus says of John that he's the greatest of all born of women, that Jesus' judgment of John, and Jesus was not given to hyperbole or exaggeration, So when Jesus describes John, he describes him as the greatest, most important human being who ever lived. In the account that Luke gives us of John's birth and and the conception of John, which is miraculous, like the story of so many in Israel's history, John's encounter with Jesus comes first when John is still in the womb. You remember the story, the angel comes to Mary, declares to her what will happen, Mary runs to Elizabeth, and in the meeting of Mary and Elizabeth, the, the babies in their wombs commune. And John, it says, is filled with the Spirit while he's still in the womb and leaps for joy at the presence of Jesus. But by the time we encounter him here, he is a man at the edges of the world, of his world. He's at the River Jordan, near the city of Jericho, far from the centers of power. And yet he's declaring that God's judgment is coming and that the people of God must repent, must bow their knee and bow their necks to the coming judgment of God. They must repent. And he is in no way careful about the ways he speaks to the authorities, to the Sadducees, to the Pharisees, to the priests, and ultimately to Herod, which is what ends his life. His public denunciation of Herod leads to his arrest and ultimately to his execution. John is a larger-than-life figure, 
eccentric but incredibly powerful. In fact, it's said of him that he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. That like Elijah, he's a man in the wilderness, a voice crying in the wilderness. In fact, not just a voice crying in the wilderness, but a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Unique, singular, larger than life, empowered in the spirit. In some ways, he is the fulfillment of all of Israel's prophetic tradition. He's miraculously born, conceived and born. He's anointed from the, with the spirit from the womb. He carries that anointing in, in ways that no one else has carried it and pronounces the coming judgment of God and is the one, according to the Gospel of John, who points us to the light that is breaking into the world. John is the one who was not the light but bore witness to the light. He's the one who says, Behold the Lamb of God. And as I've said again and again, Jesus remarks of him that he's the most blessed, the greatest of all who are born of women. I think what's critical about John, what makes him so special, what makes him unique, what makes him singular, is that his life is utterly given over to the witness of Jesus, to directing attention to Jesus. Think of it like this. If John is the one who bears witness to the light, what does that mean about where John lives? In the darkness. And that John's greatness, John's singularity, is that no other human being experiences the darkness of evil and the darkness of the judgment of God as he does. And from that place, that depth of experiencing evil and experiencing the coming judgment of God, he points to Jesus as the one, the the coming judge, who's going to overcome the evil that threatens us. So John's life is a life lived in the darkness. We'll look later at an icon of the baptism, and you'll see that the waters in which Jesus stands are the waters of the flood, the waters of the exodus, and the waters of creation. In our readings for this morning, the reading from the Old Testament is Genesis 1, where the Spirit is hovering or sweeping over the waters of chaos. And in in the description of Genesis, before God begins to make the world, there is this deep, this chaotic deep, a primal darkness, and the Spirit hovers over that darkness. So in the waters of Jesus' baptism, we are to see, and the icon shows us this, we are to see the waters of pre-creation, the the primal waters of darkness and chaos, the waters of the flood in which God's judgment comes and sweeps evil from the face of the earth, and the waters of the exodus that carry Pharaoh and his armies into judgment, into destruction. And John lives there in the heart of God's judgment against the mystery of iniquity. And living there, he points our attention to the light. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's a a famous painting, a Renaissance painting, by Matthias Grunewald of the crucifixion. And in in this painting, you can see just to Jesus' left, if, if Jesus is hanging on the cross facing us, just to Jesus' left is John the Baptist, holding the book 
and a bony finger pointing to Jesus on the cross, directing our attention to the crucified one. Footnote to this, Grunewald was a Renaissance painter, but he carried in the traditions of medieval painting. And so his, his painting, which becomes an altarpiece in Eisenheim, is a shocking piece, a stunning piece. And if you later today or right now, if you're at home, if you Google details of this piece, you can see the ways in which Jesus' skin is flayed and pulled open and the barbs left in him from the whippings that he received. But what I want you to attend to right now is the detail of John. Do you see? I have, I have another image. This is John, that long finger, exaggerated finger, pointing to Jesus. This is the Lamb of God. And in the back, in Latin, is this line, I must decrease, but he must increase. He must increase, but I must decrease. And that is what John embodies, this attention, this attentiveness this adoration and expectation for Jesus. And if there is ever a time, and there is always a time, but if there's ever been a time in which we need to turn our attention to Jesus, it's right now. One of my favorite stories about Stanley Hauerwas, who's also a larger-than-life figure, professor at Notre Dame and then Duke, retired now, but is one of those characters who, if he didn't exist, someone would have to invent him. There's a famous story about him being at Notre Dame and walking the halls and getting onto an elevator with a couple of other professors who are talking to each other something about religion. And they're having this very learned, esoteric conversation about philosophy and theology and sociology. And right before they step out of the elevator as the doors open, Harawas, who's a, who's a rather small, thin man with a very raspy voice, turns to them and says, boys, what in the does that have to do with Jesus? And walks out of the elevator. We need that kind of redirection right now. With all the things that we're hearing, with all the things that we're saying, with all the things we're thinking without saying, we need somebody, a strange somebody, to say, what in the, does that have to do with Jesus? We need that kind of almost violent redirection. This, our life, is about Jesus. That's who we are. The Spirit of the Father has claimed us as witnesses to Jesus. That has to be what our attention is turned toward. That has to be what concerns us above all else and in everything else. Jesus... And sometimes I, I think we, sh we should say to ourselves, if no one else will say it to us, right in the midst of whatever has got our attention at the moment, whatever has carried us away into this emotion or that, whether it's anger or despair or fear, whatever we're feeling in the moment, we need to say to ourselves, what in the world does this have to do with Jesus? That's the crucial question. And John does that. He points us to Jesus. He directs us back to the fact that what God is doing in the world is always fitted to the suffering servant. It's fitted to the life of the man, Jesus, who comes among us as one who serves and dies for us, that we might know the peace of God. And what he shows us in showing us 
Jesus at this baptism is nothing less than the character of God. This, this is the heart of Christian conviction, that what we see happening with Jesus is a revelation, an epiphany, a theophany. It is everything we need to know about who God is and what God is like and what God purposes for us and desires from us. So let's think for a moment about the event of this baptism that John's directing our attention to. The first thing I want you to see is that Jesus goes out to John. Jesus comes from Nazareth to the Jordan where John is baptizing. It's a long walk. At the very least, it's a three-day journey. Jesus makes from where he is to where John is in order to inaugurate his ministry. It might have been, it might have been as long as a week's journey to get to where John is so this moment can happen. Jesus goes out there. And I think this is something important to remember about Jesus. There is no length to which he won't go to reach everything and everyone he means to reach. The way that Paul will say this is that his prayer for us is to know the height, the depth, and the length, and the breadth of the love of God. So what we see in the first act of Jesus going out to John is that he goes to whatever length necessary to reach the depths, the extremes, the corners, the edges, the heights, the depths, to claim them for God. And again, Paul will say that he who ascended first descended to the lowest parts of the earth that he might ascend and give gifts to people, give gifts to men and women and children, to his creation. So what we see in Jesus is the one who covers the entire map. There's nothing too extreme for him. There's nothing too deep, nothing too high, nothing too far away. He goes out to John and he goes down in the waters. He goes down in the waters of chaos. He goes down in the waters of the flood. He goes down in the waters of the exodus. He goes down with the damned. Now think about this difference. He doesn't go through the waters on dry land. They, the waters don't part for him as they did at the exodus. He goes down in the water with Pharaoh and his army, with the wicked ones of the earth, with you and with me. He goes down into the chaos to claim it for God. This, this is what Jesus says. If you love those who love you, what have you done? But if you love those who hate you, you bear the mark of the Father's love. Well, that's exactly what Jesus embodies. He loves those who hate him. So in the language of Paul, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God comes seeking us when we're not seeking him. He gives his life for us in our estrangement from him. He goes down in the waters and he rises up as the new creation. This is why in Mark and in Luke, we get the detail that the spirit settles on him like a dove. Now, if you know scripture at all, you know the story of the dove searching the world as the flood is abating. And when the dove doesn't return to the ark, what does it mean? A new creation has emerged on the other side of the judgment of God. And so when the Spirit rests on Jesus, that is the sign that the new creation has come. He's come up from the waters of judgment. And creation, new creation, is here. And the Spirit rests on him. And notice the Spirit rests 
In the beginning, the Spirit hovers and sweeps back and forth over the face of the earth in its chaos. But now the Spirit settles on Jesus because order has come. God's kingdom is realized. And in the psalm we prayed together today, we say that the Lord rests on the flood. He's enthroned on the flood because the Spirit has come to him. And then Jesus goes out from his baptism as the one proclaimed beloved. The voice of the Father speaks, you are my son, the beloved. And Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, rises from the water and goes out into the wilderness to begin his conquering of the enemies of God and the reconciliation of those enemies to God. And everything that happens to Jesus in this moment, what makes this moment a singularity, is that everything that's happening to Jesus is happening to us too. The church fathers repeatedly say that Jesus was baptized by John, not in order to wash away his sins because he's sinless. He's baptized by John in order to sanctify the water for us. So that when Jesus enters into the waters of baptism, nothing is happening to him except what he is allowing to happen to him for the sake of us. He's not changed. The water is changed. The water is charged with the Spirit. And so becomes the waters of our baptism, the waters of our redemption and regeneration. But it isn't just the waters. Everyone and everything is being taken up into what happens to him. If you look at the, the baptism icon that I mentioned earlier, you can see how this is being enacted. Jesus is in the midst of the waters. The waters are rising up to his neck. And on one side of him stands John with the ax and the tree, and, Jesus, and he has his hand stretched over Jesus. And on the other side are angels and saints anticipating the reconciliation of what has happened in, in history. The reconciliation of old and new, death and life, darkness and light. And in the midst of that separation, those two mountains kind of broken open by the destruction of evil, the Spirit descends on Jesus. The Spirit descends on him as the new creation. And you can't see it very well in this image. I'm sorry, it's distorted. But all around Jesus, you can see fishes as the King James says, but he's standing on doors. And those are the doors of death, the doors of Hades. And if you look closely, again, I apologize that the image is distorted, you can see the bodies of Adam and Eve. Adam is on his right, Eve is on his left, reaching toward him. So that what's happening in the waters of baptism is that Jesus is conquering death. He's destroying the evil that destroys us and reclaiming Adam and Eve. He is, as we will say on Holy Saturday, harrowing hell. He's robbing hell of all that hell has taken from us. He's claiming again what God has made in the beginning. And I, I want to stress that in doing this, he does it by yielding to John's ministry. So in my last couple of minutes, I want to turn attention back to John, just, just for a moment. Notice here in this icon, John is out of the water, standing with his hand on Jesus' head. 
Remember what we're told in the gospel today about John's witness to Jesus. And if you would, go back for a moment to that image of that detail in Grunewald's painting of John pointing to Jesus and the text behind him, he must increase, but I must decrease. What is it that John says? Not only he is the one, but I am not worthy. I am not worthy to carry his sandals, to even unlace his sandals. He's greater than I am. I am not worthy. I must decrease. He must increase. And there is a way, and, and, and there is a wisdom to that that I, I don't want to dismiss. A, a way of acknowledging God's greatness, a way of acknowledging God's otherness, God's beyondness, God's glory and holiness and power. And yet this week, as I was preparing to share with you, I kept hearing a kind of shadow, pun intended, in what John is saying. I am not worthy. Many of us, hopefully not all, but many of us will have been shaped in a Christianity that thinks that our relationship to God is always a competitive one. That God's will comes at the cost of my will. That God's exaltation comes at the cost of my humiliation. That for God to do what God wants to do, I must not do what I want to do. And again, there is a grain of wisdom there, for sure. There are moments in our lives in which we must say, not my will, but your will be done. There must be in us a readiness to yield to God, to submit to God. But what happens in Jesus' baptism is that he submits to John. John is saying, I'm not worthy. And in Matthew's telling of this story, he protests and says to Jesus, I must not baptize you. I'm not worthy to baptize you. And I think there is a way in which that right desire to be submitted to God can so easily turn back against us and inflict in us the belief that we're not worthy. But notice, Jesus doesn't say of John, you're not worthy. John says of John, I am not worthy. And there can be, I think, for some of us, a way in which we're pointing to Jesus because we're afraid of who we are. And as crucial as it is that our lives bear witness to Jesus, it is not good when our witness to Jesus arises from our own hatred of ourselves or our own fear of ourselves. So why does Jesus submit to John? I want to submit to you that he submits to John because he means to teach John this truth, that whatever the Father says of him, Jesus, the Father says of John. That Jesus comes under the hand of John. He, he submits to the baptism of John. He says, in order to fulfill all righteousness... There is, I think, a stage on the way toward the fulfillment of God's purpose for our life where we have to come to the end of ourselves, where we have to say, God's will be done and not ours. We have to be ready to say, there's no good in me. My righteousness is filthy rags. But that's a stage on the journey 
toward the wholeness, toward the healing, toward the flourishing God means for us. And what he means for us is to hear said of us what is said of the Son. You are my beloved. You can't hear that rightly until your will is submitted to his. But you're not rightly submitted to his will until you hear that as about you. And I'm, I'm convinced that this is true Because, one, notice John contrasts the baptism of water and the baptism of spirit. I baptize you with water. That's all I can do. But he will baptize you with the spirit. But actually what happens is that when Jesus is baptized, the spirit imbues the water with the life of God. We are people of sacrament. We are are people who believe that this bread and wine are not in opposition to the body and blood of Christ. They are the hosts of the body and blood of Christ. They house the body and blood of Christ for us by the power of the Spirit. And when we come to the waters of baptism, we don't believe that that merely symbolizes some spiritual reality. That spiritual reality takes up this water and makes it cleansing for us. And what we believe about water and bread and wine, we believe about people. You are members of the body of Christ. You are his lips and his ears and his eyes and his hands. You are his body. He doesn't need you to decrease so that he can increase. Demons possess and drive out the humanity. When we read the story of Legion, Legion's personality is displaced by the demonic presence. But when God feels you, you are most yourself. God does not displace us, but fulfills us. And this is why one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. Where God is most fully present in your life, you are most fully yourself. Where God's will is most fully accomplished in your life, you're doing what you want. Truly what you want, and not what sin is making you think you want to do. John does not need to decrease. He needs to be increased with the increase of God. So as we witness to Jesus, we need to recognize the Jesus we're witnessing to is always going to direct attention right back to us. He's going to return that attention to us and call us to the same increase, to to the same life. In our New Testament reading for the day, I'm sorry, I'm running a bit long, but I, I want to I share this with you before I stop. In the New Testament reading for the day, we read about these disciples in Ephesus who are disciples, but when the apostles come to Ephesus and ask them, are you filled with the Spirit? They say, no, what do you mean? And they, the, the apostles say, well, how were you baptized? And they say, we were baptized in John's baptism. Now think about this. Here is John, who's been dead for such a long time now, who's a, this wild man in the wilderness outside of Jerusalem, outside of Jericho. His teaching has reached Ephesus. But notice his teaching has reached them, and they're caught They're disciples whose lives are not yet filled with the Spirit. You know what happens at the end of John's life? This man who was filled with the Spirit from birth, from before birth, 
This man who Jesus said is the greatest of all ever born, he doubts. The end of his life, he dies questioning. Are you the one or should we look for another? Because if we want to witness rightly to Jesus, we have to accept that his belovedness is ours or we will begin to rot even in our witness to him. We will begin to doubt him if we don't believe the truth about what he says about us. That when you put your faith in God, that God brings to you his faith in you. And if you cannot believe that he believes in you, eventually you will not be able to believe in him. If all you know about the relationship of God is about power differential, God, you're God, and I'm not, you will start to suspect that God is not good in the way that he says he is, at least not for you. And we can, all of us, get caught like those Ephesians disciples where we've started the journey toward Jesus. We've become witnesses of Jesus, but we're not yet filled with the life of Jesus. And our own doubts about ourselves and deep distrust of ourselves and even hatred for ourselves undermines the integrity of our witness to his goodness. And so what I want to say to you this morning, what I want to leave with you, is that you have to be able not only to direct attention to Jesus, but let Jesus' attention come to you. And know that Jesus is radically devoted to you. He believes in you. He trusts you. As scripture says, he is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. The way Paul says it is God gave up his only son for us. Just a few months ago, I was working through Exodus, the story of the Exodus and the burning bush experience. And that moment in which God says to Moses, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. And I heard the Lord say this, you must take off your shoes and draw near so I can wash your feet. Because the God of the burning bush is Mary's boy whose life is given because he is in love with you. And when the father says, beloved, it's just as true of you as it is of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Amen.